Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast. Well, we have arrived at what many people consider to be the best Mummy movie of all time. The Mummy from 1999, starring Rachel Weitz and Brendan Fraser. As there is a lot to go into with this film, it has been necessary to make two episodes on it. The first episode shall go over the first half of the film, and the second episode shall go over the second half. In terms of the format of this episode... I shall start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the first half of this film and say whether I am enjoying it or not up until this point. Right. You may not consider yourself to be an explorer, or an adventurer, or a treasure hunter, but you are proud of what you are. You are a librarian. Right at that moment, however, you are a bit of all three things you believe that you are not. You are stood in Hamanatra, the lost city of the dead, searching for the golden book of Amon Ra. However, little do you know that you shall help awake something terrible upon this earth. Soon you shall awake the mummy. This film was very, very roughly based on the 1932 Mummy movie that starred Boris Karloff. And originally, in honour of this, they were going to have the old black and white Universal logo appear at the beginning of the film. In terms of the budget, this film cost $80 million to make, which comes to almost $1.44 million after inflation. This means that this is easily the most expensive mummy movie made up until this point. Further, considering that it made $416.4 million at the box office, 
it was also the most successful Mummy movie up until this point. In terms of the cast, Arnold Vosloh plays Imhotep, the mummy. Brendan Fraser plays Rick O'Connell, the main male lead. And Rachel Weitz plays Evie, the main female lead. And Patricia Velasquez plays Anaxana Moon, the consort of Pharaoh Seti I and the forbidden love of Imhotep. Further, Stuart Tyson Smith, who had previously worked on Stargate in 1994, was the Egyptology consultant for the film. For the most part, he helped to construct how the ancient Egyptian language may have sounded, and also helped with the creation of many of the Egyptian texts found in the film, making sure that they were translated properly. We have now arrived at the historical accuracy section of this episode, and in all honesty, just the first two minutes of this film led to me having a page full of notes. But even in the first 20 seconds or so, there is a lot to talk about. The film starts with a very CGI-ish shot of the pyramids, which look like the very famous ones found at Saqqara, just outside of Cairo today. Interestingly, as this scene is set 3,000 odd years ago, we can see the golden capstones on top of the pyramids, which are no longer present in the modern day. This is a nice touch. The camera then zooms out to reveal several mistakes in quick succession, however. Firstly, we see a city which the narrator tells us is Thebes. Thebes was an ancient city whose ruins can be found in the modern-day city of Luxor. These pyramids most certainly are not present at Thebes, and in fact, Thebes is more known for sites such as the Valley of the Kings, Karnak and Deir al-Bahari. We then see that people are still working on creating what is presumably supposed to be the Great Sphinx. And next, we see the pharaoh Seti I riding on a chariot. Firstly, Seti I's reign began in the 14th century BCE, and considering we see Seti getting killed later in the scene, we can assume the film is actually set in the 13th century BCE. Meanwhile, the Great Sphinx was built in the 26th century BCE, so there is roughly about a 1,300 year gap between them. Further, although a little pedantic of me, Seti I's chariot is being pulled by four horses, when in reality, Egyptian chariots were pulled by two horses. On a more positive note, when we see Anaxana Moon, the consort of Seti I and the forbidden love of the main villain, Imhotep, she is wearing some very revealing fishnet-style clothing. This outfit is not necessarily incorrect, and similar outfits have been found. In this section, due to time constraints, I will not be going into the characters of Imhotep and Anaxana Moon and their real-life counterparts. However, if you are interested in this subject, please listen to the very first episode I ever did for this podcast. This episode is on The Mummy 1932, and I do go into it more there. Skipping forward a little, Anaxana Moon ends up killing herself in this early part of the film, and then we see Imhotep taking her body to a place named Hamanatra to bring her back from the dead. Hamanatra, at this part of the film, is called the burial place of the sons of the pharaohs. This is nonsense, um... And in all honesty, the sons of the pharaohs would have likely been buried in the Valley of the Kings at this time, 
or at least somewhere in the Theban necropolis. So not only is Samanatra not a real place, but the name is not even Egyptian and seems to have been made up purely for the film by the writers. When Imhotep tries to bring Anaxenamun back, he uses the Book of the Dead, which in this film looks like a modern book, but made of metal. Books of this sort do not exist in ancient Egypt and didn't really come about until the Roman Empire. Instead, the Book of the Dead, which is actually a real thing, um, also called the Book of Going Forth by Day, was a selection of scrolls that was stored in the coffin or the tomb of the deceased from the New Kingdom onwards. These were a set of instructions designed to help the deceased to traverse the afterlife. Also in the scene, we see five canopic jars lined up alongside Anaxenamun's body. In reality, there were only ever four canopic jars. So if we're looking at the canopic jars in the film from left to right, first we see Happy, the baboon-headed god who held the lungs. Then we see Duamutef, the jackal-headed god who held the stomach. The middle canopic jar seems to be either a lion or a cat, and this is the odd one out that didn't really exist. Then we have Imseti, who's a human, uh, and his jar holds the liver. And finally, we have Kuamutef, the falcon-headed god whose jar held the intestines. After this, we see Imhotep and his priests get stopped before they can finish the ritual, and they are punished by being buried alive. This never actually happened in ancient Egypt, and once again, as spoken about in my episode on the Mummy 1932, this trope may have originated with the body of Pentawa, one of the sons of Ramesses III. His mummy basically looked like it was screaming when it was discovered in the 1800s. Pentuer was part of the assassination of his own father and almost certainly came to a violent end. Early explorers in the 1800s believed that he had been buried alive as punishment and although a man named Grafton Elliot Smith disproved this in 1912, a lot of stories and things had already been inspired by the idea of Pentuer being buried alive, and it's probably this that led to the buried alive trope you often find in ancient Egyptian films. The final thing I'd like to talk about for this opening sort of pre credit scene, and it's something that also appears throughout the film, is the idea of the Magi. So this film basically portrays them as sort of bodyguards and the protectors of tombs, and this is actually pretty accurate. Originally, the Magi were an ethnic group from Nubia, which is in modern-day Sudan. However, over time, the meaning of the name changed, and by the New Kingdom, its meaning was a lot closer to guard or even policeman. So, the film isn't necessarily incorrect here. After the opening scene, the film moves forward to 1923, which is the main setting of this film. One of the first scenes we see shows Evie, one of the main characters, cataloguing the library of the Cairo Museum of Antiquities. During the scene, she claims to read both hieroglyphics and hieratic. Firstly, hieroglyphics is not technically the correct pronunciation, and the correct terminology would either be hieroglyphs or hieroglyphic writing. Essentially, hieroglyphics changes an adjective to a noun. 
On the other hand, hieratic is a real form of ancient Egyptian writing. So hieratic is actually almost as old as hieroglyphs themselves and was basically the handwritten version of the writing. It was normally written with a reed brush on papyrus and interestingly, it's also a form of writing that even many Egyptologists do not completely know how to read. Later still, we see Evie and her brother Jonathan find a map to Hamanatra, and they see the seal of Seti I. Evie claims that Seti I was the second pharaoh of the 19th dynasty and thought to be the richest pharaoh of them all. So, to begin with, Seti I was the second pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, so that is accurate. However, although he almost certainly was a very wealthy pharaoh, he probably was not the richest of all of them. Pharaohs such as Thutmose III, who expanded Egypt's borders um, further south than any other pharaoh, all the way to Haga el Merwa in South Sudan, was almost certainly wealthier than him. Either way, the film leads to our main characters heading to Hamanatra, and in all honesty, the lore of this fictional location of Hamanatra starts to become a little all over the place. In the opening of the film, it is said to be the burial place of the sons of the pharaohs. Then, it is said to hold the treasure of the earliest pharaohs. And finally, they constantly call it Seti's place. It certainly feels like not even the writers entirely knew what Hamanatra was supposed to be. On the journey to Hamanatra, we find out that Evie is looking for a book from the Old Kingdom called the Book of Amon Ra. Firstly, much like with Hamanatra, this book is completely fictional. Secondly, the god Amun Ra did not come about until the New Kingdom. Essentially, in the New Kingdom of Egypt, occasionally gods would be combined. For instance, in this case, the gods Amun has been combined with the sun god Ra to make Amun Ra. When at Hamanatra, Evie uses many mirrors to reflect light off of each other to light up the chambers of the tomb. Although this is quite fun, I, I think it's quite fun anyway, I do find it quite funny that she specifies that only ancient mirrors can do this. They, you know, that's nonsense. And secondly, this most certainly was not an ancient Egyptian trick and was made up again purely for the film. When they start to explore the tombs of Hamanatra, the location becomes even more perplexing as, from what I can see, a large amount of the cartouches in the backgrounds were of Ptolemaic origin. So, the Ptolemaic period of Egypt did not start for almost another thousand years after the death of Seti I. So, okay, we've started with this is the burial place of the sons of the pharaohs. It then turns out it's got all of the wealth of the earliest pharaohs of Egypt. Then we for some reason it's called Seti's place and now it has loads of cartouches from a thousand years after the reign of Seti the first. They, I guess this this place had a long history and a, lot, a very buried history, but no, honestly this is not a real location. Later in the scene, Evie starts to explain the process of mummification. So she starts by saying that the internal organs and the heart were removed from the body. If you've listened to previous episodes, you probably know that the heart was left in the body because it was needed for the deceased to get to the field of reeds in the afterlife. So essentially, if 
for the deceased to get into what is kind of the ancient Egyptian equivalent of heaven. E.B. then goes on to say that the Egyptians then shoved a red-hot poker up the deceased's nose, scrambled things about a bit, and ripped out the brain through the nostrils. It is true that they removed the brain, however, instead the bone in the nose was broken to allow a thin iron rod to be inserted. Water was then poured into the nostrils to the brain, and an iron rod was used to stir the brain into a smoother substance that could be poured out of the nostrils. During the scene, a coffin then falls through the ceiling, and Evie reads the lid. She says that it says, He who shall not be named. So, you know, I guess um, <laughs> Voldemort was buried in this. Though, as I pointed out, I believe it was on the episode on the tale of the mummy, it wasn't actually uncommon for the ancient Egyptians to mutilate names of people who they didn't like, essentially. People who had done terrible things. Um, what's actually quite interesting, though, is the hieroglyphs she's reading do kind of say what she's saying. So, they actually read the one without a name. Another nice feature is when they use the key, which I shall talk about more next episode, to unlock the coffin, we see a cartouche of Seti I on it. So that's, you know, quite a nice touch, I think. Finally, for this section of the episode, during the scene, there is another team searching for the tomb, and they find an inscribed box at the base of the statue of Anubis. Firstly, one of their member reads the hieroglyphs on the box in the wrong direction. As I have repeated a lot in this series, hieroglyphs can be read from left to right, right to left, or top to bottom, but you always read into the faces and humans depicted. Honestly, I'm getting a bit sick of saying that. <laughs> However, interestingly, what he's reading is more or less what's written on the box, although admittedly kind of jazzed up a bit. He claims the box reads, Death will come on swift wings to whomsoever opens this box. The hieroglyphs on the box really say, He shall die, namely anyone who shall open this chest. So... So far, when it comes to the historical accuracy of this film for, you know, the first half, I'd say for the most part it's pretty poor. We have pyramids in the wrong part of Egypt, we have people reading hieroglyphs in the wrong direction, and the Book of the Dead being portrayed as an actual book, amongst other things. It is worth noting that the film does get a few things correct. It shows Magi as guards and protectors, which is accurate. The outfit of Anaxanamun is also based on real examples from ancient Egypt. And finally, largely thanks to the Egyptologist Stuart Tyson Smith, the hieroglyphs shown in the film are actually pretty good, I think. In this final section, I shall give my review of the first half of the film and just sort of say whether I'm enjoying it or not up until this point. So I'll start with the parts that I enjoyed as usual. Firstly, there is an undeniable charm to this film and in all honesty, there is not a single character that I don't enjoy watching. Also, pretty much every second of the first 10 minutes of this film is incredibly exciting. We go from ancient Egypt where there is forbidden love, betrayal, and the attempt of resurrecting the dead, to 1923 
where there is a huge battle going on at Hamanatra. Further, as well as simply being exciting, these scenes also effectively introduce many of the main characters and give us glimpses into their personalities. Rick O'Connell, for instance, is shown as a brave adventurer. Benny, uh, one of the other characters, is instantly portrayed as a coward, and both Imhotep and Anaxanamun are shown to be both passionate and rebellious. In general, the film does a very good job of having scenes achieve multiple things. For instance, most of the humour in the film also serves purposes outside of just being funny. In the scene that introduces Evie, she accidentally knocks down every shelf in the library of Cairo Museum of Antiquities. However, because this happened, we also learn that she is one of the few people who can catalogue the library, and that she knows ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and hieratic. This scene also helps us to understand her working relationship with her boss, Dr Terence Bay, and we learn that her parents have sadly passed on, but it's very likely that she got her fascination with Egypt from them, as they were the museum's finest patrons. I really feel that this made the humour, for instance in this scene it will see shells falling over, seem very unforced, which is an art that many modern blockbusters struggle to achieve today, I feel. For instance, although I'm very much a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I feel that very often these films have humour that can feel quite forced and... Most of the time, they would be better off if they toned it down a little bit. After all, less is more sometimes. I do understand that, you know, not everyone's going to agree with me on that point, but that's just my personal feeling on it. Okay, now I'm going to move on to the sections of the film that I liked for the wrong reason. So, the parts that I found funny that weren't really supposed to be funny. Firstly, I feel that the scarab beetles in this film are supposed to be quite scary as they can devour a person in about a second flat. But realistically, the fact that scarab beetles are nothing like this in real life is incredibly apparent. They may be able to give you a bit of a nasty bite, but they certainly can't burrow under your skin. Further, a lot of the parts of this film really don't make sense. For instance, Seti knows that Anax on the Moon has been touched by another man because the paint on her shoulder has been smudged. It's quite apparent, and I'm definitely not the first person to mention this, that an action moon could have just had an itch and needed to scratch her shoulder. So, I guess Seti the First is a little bit paranoid. Though I guess, it, admittedly, he was right. Towards the end of the first half, we also see Imhotep take the eyes and tongue from Mr Daniels. However, throughout the film, it's been made quite apparent that Mr Daniels is incredibly blind and can't see anything without his glasses. So I'm guessing Imhotep had to wear contact lenses, as he's never wearing glasses in the film. Finally, at the beginning of the film, as said in the historical accuracy section, we see the pyramids at Thebes. However, later we then see those same pyramids at Cairo. So apparently the Egyptians were such good builders that they could make pyramids that were actually movable. If this were true, I feel that the British would have stolen them a long time ago, to be honest. Right. Finally, I'll go over the parts of this film that I really didn't like. To be honest, I am admittedly very biased when it comes to this film, and I do view it through rose-tinted spectacles. However, realistically, I do believe that if another film had CGI this bad, I would give it a negative, so 
I will here as well. Secondly, although I try to keep the review and the historical accuracy sections of these episodes separate, as, you know, ultimately these films are primarily about entertainment, this film does take one too many liberties, um, in my opinion, and it does actively harm the film a little bit. For instance, although I do find it funny that at the beginning of the film we see the Great Pyramids at Thebes and later we see them at Cairo, I will also admit that every Egyptian film having the pyramids in them, no matter where they are set in Egypt, is really annoying. This is especially true as the pyramids, although impressive, are only one part of Egyptology and there are so many impressive things that get overlooked because people fixate on them. For this opening scene, for instance, they could have shown the temple complexes of Karnak or Luxor Temple. They could have shown the Valley of the Kings or the breathtaking Deir al-Bakari. All of these sites were present in Egypt during the reign of Seti I and not just present, they were actively used at the time. Seeing these sites would have been far more interesting than seeing some out-of-place pyramids in my opinion. And further, Although Stuart Tyson Smith was seemingly only used for the reconstruction of text and the sound of the ancient Egyptian language in this film, the budget of this film most certainly was big enough to either pay him a bit more or get the perspectives of more Egyptologists. Therefore, I do not feel that there is much excuse for this. However, despite these negatives, I will admit that at the halfway mark, I am very much enjoying this film. I have not been bored for a single second, and honestly, every actor in the film is a pleasure to watch. Thank you very much for listening. If you are new, please consider subscribing, and please join me next Monday for the concluding part of The Mummy 1999. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.